Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Buddha Brothers Podcast. Now, this episode, we are interviewing one of our favorite YouTubers, host of The Jay Martin Show and CEO of Cambridge House International, Mr. Jay Martin. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Awesome. We came across Jay because we were trying to up our financial education and knowledge. And YouTube is one of the most powerful tools on the planet. And we really got into your content and took a deep dive and started listening to some of the things you were talking about and the guests that you brought on. And it really inspired us to understand a little bit more about how to develop um, security for your finances and to invest properly. But um, before we do all that, you are a martial artist. We'd love to hear a little bit about your background in martial arts and and maybe how it's uh, uh, affected your life. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a fun part of my life for sure. And one that I, I wouldn't say I stumbled onto early, but I was maybe like in my young 20s, I think, when I first walked into a dojo and was just so curious about how I, how I could live in this world. And, um, um, you know, like I've always been an athlete, many sports throughout my life. And I think the two that I've gravitated the most towards have been martial arts and running. And, you know, it's actually like not dissimilar to how I think about my portfolio. I'm sure we'll get into that. But the reason I, I love those two so much is because they're as simple as it gets. You know, what I loved about martial arts was that there was no bells and whistles. There was no gear. It was like as primitive as you can get in sport. Two individuals get in a ring and it's like, you know, all you have is your hands and your feet. That's it. So I hope you're pretty good with yours because I'm good with mine. Right. And that's that's the only thing in the conversation. There's no sticks, pucks, balls, nothing. Right. So it was just so primitive and simple um, that I just I feel like it's such a valuable exercise and skill. And and uh, and mountain running, honestly, is the same for me. Like I kind of feel the same about it. You know, I, I do triathlon, but I love running and uh, and specifically mountain running because it just brings me back, I think, to some like core primitive instinct about how we behave as, as a species. And I, I really, really enjoy that. Nice. Now, what got you into your investing career and getting into financial, personal autonomy and investing in general? Well, I, um, I've always been entrepreneurial and had a few small businesses when I was in my early 20s that were really, really fun, um, didn't make any money. One was a personal training business. I called it ABC Fitness, Athletic Balance and Conditioning. And, uh, and my next was a whitewater rafting company. I used to do a lot of whitewater kayaking. And it was actually a core sort of driving force in my life for about a decade and controlled a lot of the major decisions like where I would live, um, you know, in relationships and whatnot about, you know, how I could be closer to, to rivers. But I ended up uh, buying an interest in a whitewater rafting company. And again, super fun. Like I loved every day of it, uh, really holistic living. And and um and but i didn't make any money and, and you know eventually i think i i started, started to understand how much energy these businesses were taking from me how much they were impacting the direction of my life and um and uh i needed to get some financial return in exchange for that energy not just fun you know fun's important and still the most important but i want to make money too you know and um and that keeps me motivated honestly so what keeps me motivated i suppose and um <clears throat> It was chatting with a few mentors that I came to understand, for me anyways, um, that the, the the smartest and most efficient path towards 
wealth creation was never going to be through salaries or even necessarily business income. It was going to be through capital gains. And that's how the wealthiest people that I could identify became wealthy. And so that started to migrate my thinking, you know, sure, the, the capital gain, the, the value of the business you create, absolutely. That's a very long journey, you know, to uh, to build to an exit. And um, But there's lots of opportunity in the capital markets to put cash to work if you're willing to do the work and elbow your way into the room, um, build that network, build those relationships. And, um, and it's equally thrilling as uh, being a small to medium business owner, uh, especially, well, I suppose anywhere you look, but I, I like the early stage stuff that kind of sketchy stuff, you know, and you're sort of in the ground floor and you're, you're really just betting on entrepreneurs, right? Like it's um, a lot of the businesses I invest in. I have a very barbell approach, meaning like super stable and boring over here and then very speculative and high risk over here and, and nothing really in the middle. I like to just be on polar opposites of the spectrum. And on that risky spectrum, like you're not investing in the service or the industry or the product you're investing in a human being and whether or not they're going to make good decisions you know you're going to let them have an adventure with your money it's like what are they going to do with that right and so do they surround themselves with great people are they of high integrity do they have a plan c because plan a and b are probably going to fail or become compromised and um and that's just it's a thrilling place to invest to spend some time and and uh and truthfully if you're willing to do the work it's also where you can find those 5x to 20x returns and it's only because you take on substantial risk like that needs to be acknowledged um but it's it's a fun hunt it's definitely a very fun hunt and it definitely takes discipline and just like in martial arts which helps develop that kind of discipline i'm curious about what other virtues that you learned in martial arts that have helped you in your investing career well, uh, discipline and patience would be too, absolutely. And to, uh, to police your emotion. I mean, that's what investing, you know, it's all about. And, you know, I never competed as a martial artist. I always, I've always trained recreationally and I'll hit the gym and spar with the team and, and whatnot. And, you know, you can still get beat up and, and you still have to, you know, control how you feel when that occurs. You know, if you, you take a shot and, you, you know, you kind of get rocked and, by somebody you feel like they shouldn't have gotten that in on me, you know, like you can respond with a bit of unnecessary emotion. And and usually in my experience, that's to my detriment and investing is very much the same. And, you know, I publish a weekly newsletter and uh, I don't necessarily talk about markets. I rarely talk about, sometimes I talk about stocks I'm in and whatnot. I never give recommendations and rarely forecasts and predictions. But what I do talk about is I think back to like, what's the, the, you know, I love martial arts because it's so simplistic and primitive. I love mountain running because it's so simplistic and primitive. Well, if you do the same with, you know, your portfolio and investment management, what you get down to is just the psychology of decision-making that's at the core of all of it, right? Whether you're looking at um, managed money products, you know, bonds and treasuries, equities, whatever it's like, you know, how do you control your own biases, your heuristics and protect yourself from those, right? Um, because there's so much at play. And so it's very much emotional and psychological management, even to the point of questioning your intuition ruthlessly, because it's really fun to say, oh, trust your gut. You know, like I had this gut instinct like that. That feels good. And we want to believe that that serves us sometimes. And maybe it does. But intuition is just an algorithm that creates an output based on whatever random inputs you've experienced in your life. And those might not serve you in terms of what you expect the future to be, right? Um, we, you and I can look at the same scenario. We come from very different places and, and, and different biases and expectations as a consequence. And, 
And um, it's amazing how impacted we are by the information we intake, whether it's a slight conversation that was kind of as an aside with somebody or a serious discussion, you know, it can really shift our, th- our thinking and, and, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's at the core of it, I guess. That's very cool. One thing I really like about how you approach things is lifestyle design. And from listening to your YouTube channels, you definitely focus on how to increase your financial wellness, but you also are always calculating in your, your other types of wellnesses as well. Um, jumping from a businesses that weren't making you money to, uh, investing probably was a difficult move or probably was something that was challenging. But I also know that you made a move from, um, inner city to outer city as well, too. So you're constantly taking these steps to increase, um, your lifestyle. And can you talk to me a little bit about your plan? Because I feel a lot of people attack life and they don't have a set plan for what they're they're trying to accomplish. They're just randomly um, flying about. Uh, could you talk to me a little bit about these moves that you made and, and, and why you chose to do them? Certainly. So, yes, I got really lucky. Hey, I moved up to a town called Squamish from Vancouver, British Columbia. And most people have heard of Vancouver, no matter where you're from. It's one of those cities. But Squamish is a town of 18,000 people, only 45 minutes outside of the city. But it's a gorgeous little mountain town, halfway between Vancouver and Whistler, Blackcomb, which, again, is a place most people know. And when I walk out my front door, I see three glaciers, uh, 12 months of the year, you know, and it's just gorgeous. And and I love it. Um, And we moved up here when we had our second kid on the way, I believe, um, or maybe he had arrived. We have three now. We have three little boys. And it was all about like my wife and I, we have an annual retreat and we really dive into like a business plan essentially for the family, right? Like what's the 10 year North star, you know, as, as ambiguously described as you want, but what do you want your life to be and look like and feel, you know, and for us, it was simple. We kept on sharing various ideas, but it was like a healthy, happy, adventurous family. That's what we want. You know, and then the nuances inside that are like great communication with our kids. I think kids are going to do crazy stuff, get in trouble, annoy you, all of this. But, but at, at the end of the day, as long as you maintain communication, you, you know, you're probably doing all right. And, um, and so things like this, right. And we sort of draft the, the 10 year North star and, and all of this. And then from there, we distill down, okay, well, if that's what the 10 year North star is, what's the three year vision that'll keep us on track to get there, you know, and there's always a bit more detail in that because it's nearer term, you know, and, and those might be some financial goals, some lifestyle goals, um, some epic family experiences, all of that stuff, health and wellness, et cetera. And then obviously from your three-year vision, then you draft the one-year plan. And now it's real tactical. It's like, what do we have to do this year to put ourselves on track for the three-year vision, which will point us towards that 10-year North Star eventually? And, um, you know, we we wanted... Uh, you know, when we moved to, to Squamish, this little town, it was remarkable how much of that happy, healthy, adventurous family box it ticked. I mean, notwithstanding my kids now, they learned how to swim in a lake. They're, they're crushing on mountain bikes. Um, you know, it's, it's a mountain town. It's, it's, we, you know, tons of rock climbing, tons of biking. Um, it's, it's an amazing little epicenter for adventure, but it was more like the household anxiety also dropped. I think we were right downtown in the core of Vancouver on Hastings street. Oh. And, um, 
Yeah, better yeah, have some, like, better, uh, have some self-defense there. Yeah. <laughs> West, <laughs> West, I should say West Hastings Street. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, was, I was like, you, you yeah, grew up yeah. hard. You grew up hard. That street changes real fast. Uh, <laughs> a few blocks east. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's you're in the fray, right? And and exactly, you're six blocks from, you know, the Canadian opio- opioid crisis. Like, it's it's hardcore. And But it was next door to my office and, and all this stuff. And, you know, it was home as well. So, you, you know, you're used to it. Uh, whereas when we moved up to Squamish, it was just like the, you know, if we all walk around as humans with some like pre-programmed level of anxiety, like maybe my family was an eight out of 10, you know, six months after moving to Squamish, we were all walking around at a four, you know, everybody was just more relaxed, slowed down. And I don't know what to attribute that to, whether it's because, you know, you're not walking out your, your condo, um, exit onto a busy bustling street, you're walking out your front door and it's like, you can just see the sky, you can see the mountains and, um, it just feels different. The air is better. I'm not sure, but you know, less people and, and yet you end up building better relationships as a consequence. It's funny, isn't it? How you can live in the most densely populated areas, but not know anybody. Like I didn't know my neighbors on the 23rd floor of our condo downtown. Um, I know all of our neighbors in, in our community now. And, you know, when you get back to like simplifying life, um, I'm trying to simplify mine. I'm trying to reduce dependencies. Uh, it's part of the reason we left the city and it, it's reflected in my portfolio. We can get into that, but you know, I think we've all been rattled a bit in the last three years and probably exposed to how vulnerable we are to a variety of dependencies, various supply chains and, and just systems that we sort of expect to be, uh, they become expectations, you know, and I'm never going to go full homestead style. Like it's not in my future probably, but you know, I, I appreciate the close relationships of that I have now with the people who provide essential services in my life. Like, I'm not going to be an electrician, a plumber, a mechanic, and a farmer. But if I can live in a town where I know those individuals personally, it does give me like a greater level of security, right? I do know my electrician and my plumber. I buy our grass-fed beef and pork and chicken from Hop Creek Farms right down the road, you know, and I'm reducing, I hope that I'm reducing those vulnerabilities in our life because I I think the 2020s are going to be like the 2020s have been, just kind of a continued unprecedented trajectory of chaos and uncertainty and not knowing how to prepare for uncertainty. It's like, let's reduce the vulnerabilities in, in the system, you know? and uh get back to basics and get back to basics if we can so it's been nice so when you look at martial arts generally a a good battle plan combines a a balance of offense and defense i'm curious to hear your take on that strategy when it comes to investing and your portfolio i think that uh the defense is more important than offense and the reason is is if if for me, you know, offense is those high risk speculative bets, the equities market, all this stuff. Um, and defense is a brick of gold and um, maybe some real estate, some land, something that I own outright, like a hard asset. Um, I'm far more likely, obviously, to get cleaned out on the speculative side. And if this goes to zero, you know, I, I've, I've got this over here, right? Um, I, I think it's, it's the way I say it is like, build your moat before you build your castle. So if you want to go to the table and gamble in the equities market, and I think it's equally risky to play the broad equities market as it is to play where I play, by the way, I just think things are pretty shaky right now. Um, I want to do so from a position of strength. I want to make that bet from a position of like, I can get wiped out and I'll be okay. Tomorrow won't really be that different for me. I might be a bit depressed, but my family's going to be all right, you know? And so 
For me, defense is those unshakable, unshakable, durable assets that have stood the test of time, generation after generation, market cycle after market cycle, empires, they rise, they fall. There's some things that have maintained their purchasing power. And they may not be the exciting assets that are going to deliver you, you know, some yield or a massive gain, but throughout generations, and I mean, you know, gold, for example, you know, at least 2,600 years has retained its purchasing power. It's it's often a boring asset to own. Turns out that's okay. A safe haven defensive asset should be boring. Imagine if it wasn't. Like, you know, there's a lot of debate over the last few years about is Bitcoin supplanting gold? And I own Bitcoin. I have a horse in that race. Absolutely. But that question is the wrong question. Like, you know, you want a lack of volatility in your safe haven asset right? You don't want that price to move very frequently. You want it to maintain and be boring. You want it to be the pet rock. That's really it, you know, but over time it retains purchasing power. Um, and so if you, I, I always begin with that, like whatever you're putting on the table that you, you could lose, like, you know, I, I just think, what do I need over here so that I still sleep well at night? Right. And so I'm usually 80% defense in my portfolio. That's very cool. And for our, our listeners who maybe have never even thought of purchasing gold, you're talking about physical gold, ounces, um, gold and silver, or just gold? Uh, I buy both. I tend to buy gold because it's just, it stores better, yes. <laughs> you know? Um, but that behind me, there, that's a hundred ounce uh, silver shell that I, I got from a, a bet I won. And uh, nice. I definitely have silver um for sure uh but um either or you know silver is more volatile it's also more accessible um there's interesting arguments behind each silver has the monetary use case historically has been a, a monetary metal in some of the largest empires in the world and so it will always retain that value for investors and and therefore in theory retain purchasing power it's also subject to um, sort of economic supply and demand of industrial metals though, because it's, it's also an industrial metal, you know? And so it's, it's got a lot of utility, um, as a conductor, et cetera. So major ingredients in solar panels. And if we start trending that direction, you can, you know, expect the demand to go up. So since gold's more of a strictly pure monetary metal, it's somewhat less volatile. That's one of the reasons it's less volatile, but no, I own both. And, uh, I mean, it, why own gold? You know, there's, there's a long, there's a lot there. The, the simplest answer is, you know, three to 5,000 years of history. You know, we can only, ex we can only draw on that, you know? And, and uh, again, like as Bitcoin supplanting gold, like it's been around for 15 years. Like, I don't know if it's time to ask that question yet, you know, sure. Buy it, hold it, speculate in it, whatever. Um, like I said, I have a horse in that race. Uh, but that's not apples to apples. That's like comparing agriculture to Facebook stock. Like they're not the same thing at all, you know? Yeah. Now I know a lot of our listeners uh, are martial artists and they're probably wondering why are we talking about finance on a martial arts podcast, but for someone who might not be familiar with investing or if you've even considered it, what advice would you give them to get started? Oh, start by, by reading, I would say. And, um, and start with a very uh passive approach so so here's what you want to here's what i may recommend is you want to identify first of all like what kind of investor you are 
right? And the way to get to that answer, because if we look back in the last three years, there's been this surge of various styles of investing, largely like swing trading became super popular, day trading became super popular, people were trapped at home, had a bit of stimulus money, and they're like, let's gamble on the market, right? Day trading is really, really hard. And unless you have 70 hours a week to dedicate to that, I mean, even then, it's most get wiped out eventually. There's very few winners in that game. Um, so few that, you know, we usually know their names, their household names. And so, you know, step one is like identify what kind of investor you are. I'm a value investor. I purchase companies that I believe are undervalued that I intend on holding for like a three to five year time horizon, right? Now, how I got to that was identifying how much time I have to invest in being an investor, right? And for me, I have two businesses, I have three kids, I have about two hours a day, where I can focus on my portfolio. But that's really it. You know, it's the first thing in the morning. And then my day runs away, other things call my attention that are also important. And so with two hours a day, I can't try to be a day trader or even a swing trader. You know, I think it's impossible to time markets anyways. So, you know, that's why my approach is you could call it medium term, right? That three to five year time horizon, because within that allocation per day, I can look into where the smart money is headed in the sectors that I'm interested in. I can do diligence on the entrepreneurs behind the companies that I have added to my shortlist, right? And I can even have conversations with them, but it's a, it's an amount of time that I can sustain week over week, month over month, year over year. And, and you got to be able to say you can do that too with whatever time you're allocating. You know, when I say what, how much time do you have to invest in being an investor? It's not this week. It's like, it's like martial arts. Like you can't train for a week and, and suddenly, you know, you're, you're talented. You know, you got the black belt. It's like, no, no, no. It's, it's a lifelong pursuit. It's a lifestyle right? You dedicate a few hours every single week. And if you dedicate 10, you're going to improve way faster than if you dedicate two. But if you dedicate two over 10 years, you're still going to improve remarkably, you know? And investing is just the same. Those 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 hours compound, but over time. And so identify like, how much time can I dedicate to this over time sustainably? And then step two would be find some personalities that resonate with you. There's so many fantastic authors, podcasters, YouTubers, and no one's right. Like, I just, let me just put that out there. No one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. So don't try to figure out who's got the best track record. It's important to look at resumes. Absolutely. But a couple of rules of thumb that I would, I would recommend is like, does their style, their writing style, their speaking style, their interview style resonate with you? And then do you enjoy it? Because if you don't, if it doesn't resonate with you, if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to go back every week or every month or every day, right? Like my favorite authors publish a week or monthly newsletter, sometimes they're 50 pages long. Like if I didn't enjoy reading that, there's no way I would be able to find the time to read 50 pages, right? Like I said, I got other obligations. And so I find the authors whose style resonates with me. There's some philosophical approach they take to wealth creation. That I'm like, yes, that speaks to me. I enjoy that. And that's going to keep me coming back. And so find those personalities that resonate with you. And then secondly, just be wary that there's a lot of sharks in the water, right? There just is in this game. And especially in the the paid, um, well, in the paid and non-paid business. But, you know, if you're looking for paid content, you want to upgrade to maybe some more sophisticated uh, newsletter products or this author, you really enjoy his free content, you want to upgrade to their, their paid, their premium search. Like, just think critically about their motivations and their incentives. It's a big miss that, that often gets underlooked in that, Say I invest in the gold sector and here's an author with the paid subscription service and their brand is the gold speculator. I was like, all right, they must know a lot about gold and they probably do, but their business model is taking a monthly subscription from you 
in exchange for commentary on the gold sector. So what's the likelihood they're ever going to come out to you and say, you know what, now's not a time to invest in gold, probably won't be for about five years, because that happens too, in every industry. But you have to look at like, you know, the, the cannabis speculator, the crypto speculator, are they going to go out and tell you like, actually, it's going to be a bear market for four years, probably stay away from crypto, like, you're the crypto speculator. So what are you going to do with that with that subscription fee, right? And so, you know, what are they working for? And if it's your attention, just be hypercritical about authors that tie themselves to a specific asset class at all costs. Like we see a lot of that as cycles come and go, you know, as cannabis came and went, as crypto came and went, if gold's coming back, like we're going to see that too, a wave of gurus on the back of that specific asset class that marry it, right? And you never want to fall in love with an asset class because it'll never love you back, right? And you'll blind yourself to the performance of that. So I would be hypercritical about the incentives and, uh, and look for generalist sector agnostic, good track record, um, as best you can, high integrity, authentic, transparent, um, writers and, and podcasters. And, and, uh, so find the time, like what's the time you have, and then find a couple leaders that you trust and you want to follow. And then over time you'll, you'll learn and, and then dip your toe in the water, start slow, right? Like I, I, um, when, when I started investing in crypto, for example, like I never felt like I had enough info to be dangerous. I never felt like I had a competitive advantage. And if I don't have a competitive advantage, then like, what am I doing there? Um, and so I just dollar cost average in to an asset class like that, where I'm like, look, I don't know even what I'm buying, to be honest, if I'm buying a future replacement currency, like maybe one day, if I'm buying a safe haven asset class, like maybe one day, maybe this is just a wild speculation. I'm not sure yet. I don't think anybody knows. So therefore, like, let's just drip a bit of money in there that I can afford to lose every week that I'm not going to miss. And over time, now it's actually a decent size of my portfolio because of the performance over the last three years. I didn't intend on that. It's just like slowly dollar cost average in, right? Money I can afford to lose, not going to miss, not going to hurt me if it goes to zero, but it compounds over time. And three years later, it's actually a decent chunk of my portfolio. Um, and I don't rebalance. I, I just park it there. I stop buying. But um, yeah, I would say those are a few things that come to mind. That's awesome. So <clears throat> one of the major reasons that we wanted to talk to you two was because we see that we are at a tipping point with how the economies are going to work. And you could listen to 10 different people and get 10 different views of what's going to happen in the next little bit. Are we going into a recession? Are we at the front of a next bull market? Are we going to be switching to a, a digital uh, central bank, digital cryptocurrency? Like we have no idea what is going to happen all we know that there is a lot of uncertainty in the next little while and going on with a defensive portfolio protects you from a lot of those things and we wanted to make sure our listeners that we focus on this when we do our entrepreneurship journey as well too yes it's fun to be creating products and and selling and doing all this content creation but you do need to build a security a nest egg for yourself and your family and it sounds like you do that through um, gold and real estate now you say you have a barbell approach and that's the defensive side what would be on the offensive side then mm. so where i look is um i look in the venture stage equities and so um I'm very invested in early. So I like, I like the precious metals and the base metals right now for a few reasons, right? I think that no matter what direction, 
copper and copper nickel yeah i look at lithium and cobalt not as much for a few reasons we, we can talk about but like the renewable energy trend for example i i think it's largely fallacy to be honest with you i think the way it's been pitched is largely fallacy you know i have three young kids i live in a small mountain town I've spent a lot of my life in very remote parts of the province. I understand what we stand to lose if we don't take care of our environment. And that's very sacred to me. That's true. The way the renewable energy trend has been pitched to us is lacking some very important details. Um, one of which, where are the minerals going to come from to replace fossil fuels? The amount of copper and nickel and lithium and cobalt and manganese and silver and vanadium, and it goes on and on and on that it's going to take to capture and store and build the technologies that can actually harness sources like wind and solar effectively and efficiently and create some sort of baseload power through battery storage are uh, colossal. And I just don't think it's super realistic that those same voices who are saying, kill the fossil fuel industry are suddenly going to pivot and say, and permit every mine around the globe because we need these minerals now for this next stage. Now, we're going to pivot off of fossil fuels inevitably because eventually we're just going to run out, right? So we're going to look for a better solution. But, you know, I, I just think it's a bit flawed. However, it doesn't matter. That's, that's more of like a, a, a opinion I have. But regardless, the world's still going to gravitate towards renewable energy ideas. And on the back of that, I believe there's going to be an increased demand for certain base metals like copper and nickel. And I don't personally invest in lithium and, and cobalt only because I feel like the they, they play a, a more minor role in a lot of these technologies, um, whereas copper and nickel are sort of hallmark in any electrical application. You have an ingredient like cobalt, however, maybe massive upside if it is continued to be required in every single battery that you know, Tesla needs and, and every smartphone and every laptop like it is today. Um, but the source of cobalt is really, really sketchy, right? 76% of it comes from the Congo, um, where they're still utilizing near close child labor. And uh, they're just essentially throwing 12 year old kids in pits, sourcing through sand and dirt with their hands, exposed to crazy toxicity, getting horrible diseases under absolutely inhumane conditions, and often getting paid a dollar a day. So what's renewable about that, right? I, I really question that. You have to look down the whole supply chain. Regardless, maybe as a consequence of that, entrepreneurs like Elon Musk will just say, look, yeah, we need cobalt, but this is an, a technology in its infancy being energy storage. And he is trying right now to produce batteries that have engineered cobalt out of the equation. And that's the risk with any new technology, including battery storage, that the, the minor players, the vanadium, the magnesium, uh, sorry, the manganese, the lithium, the cobalt might just be engineered out of the equation. Cobalt and nickel, far less likely, right? And so if I believe in the thesis that we're going towards, you know, renewable electricity generation in some way, shape or form, I have confidence that those two hallmark metals are always going to be in demand no matter what else occurs on the innovation front. And so a couple of ways that I play that is I look at copper explorers. Again, I like to go pretty early stage. And right now I'm quite exposed to copper exploration companies in the United States. Um, I've got a big holding in a, in a company that's exploring in Arizona. I like them because I, first of all, trust their leadership. He's a very diligent, um, risk averse 
and disciplined human being. And he's bought some very strategic assets, one right beside uh, presently producing copper mine in Arizona that has a deposit that butts right up against his border. Proximity is important in this game because mineralization reflects that. And in addition, I think all of these metals, copper, nickel, silver, uranium, et cetera, they're all going to become of massive strategic importance. And if for my entire life, we've existed in some semblance of global trust, right? Fragile as it might be enough that we had access to global supply chains. And so, you know, you could buy a, a, a iPhone in New York City and within that, in, within that iPhone, you have some ingredients from the Yukon and some from Peru and some from the Congo. And those ingredients are shipped off to China to be manufactured and then shipped back to New York City on a boat fueled by energy from Saudi Arabia or Russia or the United States. The point is you have access to a global marketplace for all the inputs, the ingredients, the labor, and the energy. And I feel like that era is over. That trust has been broken. I don't think it's coming back in the next couple of decades. And so controlling the source of the commodities that we need to continue building iPhones and computers and cars is going to be super important for governments and national corporations and multinational corporations. So I stick to jurisdictions where I feel like there's a relatively higher predictability. And I feel that way about the United States, right? You could criticize the government all you want, but you always have to ask the question relative to what, like, what are the other choices here on a global stage, right? It's actually a really great place to live. It's super predictable, super safe, super clean. Um, there's downsides, 100%. There's corruption, of course, in any, any organization, but relative to where else, I could look. I like that. I'm in Canada. It's next door. It's a on-continent supply of a mineral that the world's going to need. There's a very low likelihood of nationalization or some uh, crippling super tax being put in place on this asset. And so I provide. I believe it's it's like you know, yeah, it's a it's good good bet to make. I I, I think it's a commodity that I trust or that I am bullish on, led by an individual who I trust on a continent that I trust. All of this stuff. Um, you know, and in a, in a, another way I play this would be the royalty game. So I'm, I'm an investor in a, a base metals royalty company. They have royalty agreements with uh, 12 uh, different copper mines around the world, copper and nickel. And so what they're doing is they're just putting royalty agreements in place, right? Getting paid on future output from these production, from these producing mines. And I like that model because they get paid more as the price goes up but they're not subject to the input costs like labor, transportation, infrastructure that mining companies are. And so they're somewhat protected from inflation as a consequence. There's like a little bit less downside risk with a royalty company as there is with a the producer. There's more upside with a producer, but there's less downside with the royalty company. And so I like to have both in the portfolio. Nice. Now, one key aspect that we're always harping on is the ability to adapt because you can go in with a plan and then things change. And this this is in life, in martial arts, in all facets. And if you don't adapt, you can go extinct. One thing that's a lot of people are talking about, and there's a lot of uh, hype and confusion is what's happening in the AI space with machine learning, chat GPT. I'm really curious to see your thoughts on how disruptive this is and what it's going to mean for the everyday person as we move forward and all of these separate technologies start combining to, to make a, a scary reality. What are your thoughts there? I uh, that's a that's a fun question. I mean, the, the short answer is I have no idea, right? Uh, but it is absolutely a fun story to watch unfold. Um, you know, Chat GPT so far in my life has become like 
if you haven't played around with that, anybody watching, like give it a go. It's it's essentially everybody now has the opportunity to have a personal employee. That's what's occurred thus far, right? That's what Chat GPT can be right now for anybody um, in terms of creating code to build a website, just providing real time. Um, relatively accurate answers to questions but um it's like your personal assistant at this point that has some limitations but is quite useful um i'm interested to see how the legal side of this plays out because it, it sort of functions how how google has functioned in that yeah, i can ask google a question google will send spiders crawling all, all over the web and then give me a result of places where i might find my answer right? Um, variety of websites, papers, whatever. Whereas chat GPT does the same thing, but then actually takes clips and bits of other people's all those papers that Google index for me, chat GPT actually creates, you know, its own version by pirating other people's proprietary work and then gives me their results. And so I'm curious to see if there's going to be a copyright battle on top of that, because you know, uh, depending on what subjects I'm running through, there might be some significant copyright infringement in terms of the answers I'm getting and credits not being um, volunteered, right? And that's a rat's nest because I may ask a question about, I don't know, say, uh, you know, Peruvian supply of copper, for example, right? And it's going to dive into a billion different websites that have a little bit of information, take 0.01% from this website and maybe 1% from that website. And how do you allocate royalties based on how that information was conglomerated and, and then passed to me? I, I'm not sure, but you know, I, I know that there's red flags being raised at Google that apparently have never been raised before in terms of how this is the biggest threat to their business model that they've seen thus far, which is pretty exciting, right? Not having a, a horse in, in that race, but getting to watch disruptions always fun. Um, you know, I, I yeah, I um I tend to go down like the the longevity rabbit hole a little bit on the exponential tech front, and um it's uh it's an entertaining place to spend time, and um but I wouldn't say it's my area of expertise. Um, since we're playing this speculation game, what do you think about central bank digital currencies? Do you think that there's something that we'll see sooner rather than later? Not at all. Um, do you? Do you see there's a chance that Canada could have uh, a central bank currency within the next 10 years? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's inevitable. Um, you know, on the Payments Canada website, they've already posted we're working on a central bank issued digital currency. They've disclosed this. There's a disclaimer that says we have no intention to put this to work, but we want to be ready in the event that we feel it's necessary. And so... You know, China's rolling one out, right? Their, their CBDC is already in use and providing, you know, as I understand this, providing the pipes for money flow for countries like Saudi Arabia, Russia, Ecuador to exchange commodities for currency um, without utilizing the world reserve currency and the pipes required, right? Which is obviously the US dollar. And so, you know, there's new financial infrastructure being built in the East that will allow non-Western allied countries to trade in commodities without touching US dollars, which is really significant. And I understand that's probably going to create a response from the West, right? With their own infrastructure. Um, the biggest concerns about CBDCs, as I hear them, the first is privacy, right? It, this gives some central body absolute transparency into every dime you spend. 
I, I honestly, yeah, that's a concern, but I also kind of feel like that ship has sailed. You know what I mean? Um, my phone knows where I am, knows what I'm doing. I, I signed that a long time ago. And I think most of us have, if you're on any social media platforms and engaging with any modern tech, right? You're, you're being tracked probably more than you know. Obviously, my phone is already listening to every single thing that I say. I mean, we know this now. I'll get served an ad about Rebox. If I talk about Rebox, and I'm probably going to get that later. Um, and it has to hear everything I say so that when I say, hey, Siri, it chimes in. Right. It never and does what you want it to. <laughs> right. And it's, it's now thinking I'm talking to it, but it has to hear everything to hear that. Right. So mm-hmm. we know this. And if you look at the terms and conditions of, you know, Instagram, TikTok, you know, they have access to every single file on your phone if that app's downloaded, every single keystroke. So it's not just what you say, it's what you type. It's all been recorded and shared and leveraged. So the privacy thing, yeah, it's a going concern, but I also feel like that ship sailed a long time ago. It's more the uh, sovereignty piece, right? So when you have programmable money, because you can say we already have digital money, people say that, yeah, we have digital ledgers, but no, it's fiat money. It's not programmable. So, you know, you look at the, the stimulus programs we've ran out in the last few years, you know, it's uh, what if that money was programmable and you could incentivize people to spend it within certain neighborhoods and not within others. Maybe you really wanted to stimulate the economy. So you offer stim checks to the population, but they discount the 10% uh, bi-weekly because you want that money in the economy, not in people's bank accounts. You want to discourage people from saving and encourage them to spend or the opposite, depending on what your, you know, uh, fiscal ambitions are, but to have, controls like that on currency, I feel like that's the piece that I'm more worried about. That's the piece that people should be more worried about because, you know, you're removing your own sovereignty over your wealth and uh, programmable money can can allow for some fairly dystopian outcomes um, in just how it incentivizes behavior. And everyone's going to vote in favor if all the government has to do is say, well, tomorrow there's going to be a thousand bucks in your account. What's not to like? Like People are going to sign that for sure right away, right? Do you think it's possible for a universal basic income? Like government funds you every month and you have X amount of time to spend it or? I think that's exactly uh, an excellent application. Like that's, it becomes real easy, right? You provide some sort of universal basic income, but it comes with a catch. You need to spend it on within this industry or that industry. And then think about like, you know, the lobby groups that control our food supply and, and, you know, for example, you know, how come you can take a food stamp to a grocery store, you can buy a bottle of Coca-Cola, but you cannot buy a cooked chicken, right? Like, what the hell is that about, right? We're not incentivizing healthy food choices for our most impoverished uh, brothers and sisters. And it's like, well, that's because the lobby groups behind companies like Coca-Cola, right? They, they, you know, they're going to obviously um, have their fingers in this. And it's like, well, if you're providing free cash to people and then you're able to put limitations on what they can and can't spend it on, like who's going to make that decision, right? We live in a capitalist society and I love that, but there's downsides to incentives. And I just can't believe that it's going to be uh, free and fair to, to uh, w- with no, with no source of control, right? There'll be too much money to be made. If you're going to put a thousand bucks per month and, you know, 30 million different people's bank accounts, there's going to be people at the table who are going to say, we want a piece of that. Right. And, uh, and it's just inevitable. It's, it's, um, it's the way free market rolls, you know, there's pros and cons. Very cool. Well, the whole point we wanted to get together was to educate people. So they at least have some conceptual ideas of different strategies and solutions. I know for a lot of people, you know, things like 
precious metals isn't even at the idea ideas about this chat gpt ai this these ideas of investing in and speculating in copper these are all different things and we're not saying that you should go out and do any of them but just open your mind to research and understand because there's a lot of activity happening behind the scenes and being prepared is going to leave you way better than being unprepared i think we're almost at the end of the podcast so anything you want to leave our listeners with in order to maybe help them understand if they were new and just starting what to do i think if there's been a theme of our conversation it's been some return to simplicity and basics right it's what maybe draws us to martial arts what draws me to running and it's what draws me to to gold and silver right if you get back to the very basics i mean it's the return to a community it's it's the farm to table philosophy that's the money version of it is gold and silver it's getting back to basics tried and tested for thousands of years but more importantly it's like the why right like I enjoy being a martial artist because it gives me a sense of confidence, physical confidence. And what that does to me is provide me with an option that I can choose if I'm caught in a compromised situation, right? Knowing that I've got a few tools in my tool belt and I know how to handle myself gives me the confidence to wait things out. So say I'm, I'm in, I'm walking down through my old neighborhood, heading east on Hastings street, and I find myself in a spot of trouble. I don't have to react immediately. I don't have to feel insecure. That inspires short-term reactive thinking, usually not in my best interest. But knowing that I'm pretty good at handling myself and I'm probably going to be okay, I can be patient. I can act more responsibly because I got that option to sit and do nothing and just wait. And this is probably just going to play itself out and I'll be just fine. I probably don't have to do anything here. And doing nothing is a great option. That's what gold does for me. It gives me that financial confidence that when faced with a crisis, I have the option of doing nothing because I know that I put that insurance policy, that defensive strategy in place. If I get wiped out over here, I'm going to be okay. If the market starts taking off and I'm feeling FOMO, I'm going to be okay, right? Because I've got that that side of the barbell buffed out, right? And, um, and gold gives me the financial confidence. It gives me the peaceful sleep at night. Um, if there's no counterparty risk, there's no central bank that can print more and, and you know compromise the purchasing power. There's no... FTX that can, you know, collapse on me and, and you know, destroy my asset. Um, there's no CEO that can make a horribly short-sighted decision and crash the company or get entangled in a PR scandal. And then my equity goes to zero because that company is compromised. There's no counterparty with gold. And, and that's why it's the simplest form of wealth preservation. It is just a boring rock. And that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Beautiful. This is really helpful for financial self-defense. And I hope all our listeners took away something from this. Jay, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Where can people learn more about what you do and get in touch with you if needed? Yeah, well, my show is called The Jay Martin Show. And we're, wherever you listen to your podcast, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, and then on YouTube, The Jay Martin Show, you'll find us there as well. And I publish a weekly newsletter. It's the, my favorite thing that I do. Um, I write it every Sunday. It's free. Uh, I share my biggest takeaways and lessons learned from the conversations I have. And uh, that's at jmartin.club if you want to sign up for that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you for tuning in. Until next week. See you later.